Hello and welcome to episode 182 of SMARTS, which as you know stands for Stunning Racism Appears, Ruining Tragedy's Sorrow. Ooh. Ooh, you like that? That's a deep one. Gotta think about it. For, for anybody who's seen the last episode of Black Lightning, we'll talk about that at the end. It was good. Um, I am one of your hosts, Julia Guglio of Internet Fame, Dash Podcaster, and with me as always is Trevor, aka Rudiger Q Podcaster. Take it away. Time for news. Excellent. Thrilling as always. So a little bit of news this week. Um, so hot off the heels of the success of the Aquaman movie mm-hmm. and the presumed negotiations that are ongoing to sign James Wan to direct a sequel, which we all assume yes, is, is happening. Um, there was the surprise announcement this week that Warner Brothers is planning, before there might be any Aquaman 2, are planning a spin-off film Focusing on the... Uh, the fish. The, <laughs> you're not far off. <laughs> Hawkman presents the fish. No, it's, um, it's going to be focusing, assuming that it actually happens, it's going to be focusing on the Trench, which are the oh, undersea race. Cool. Uh, used to be one of the seven kingdoms. They used to be like mm-hmm. sentient. And then after like millennia of, or whatever of being underwater, like devolved into these ravenous... Yeah, piranha-esque you know, humanoids. Mm-hmm. So I don't quite know how you get a movie out of that. Maybe I'll focus on like... They're, they're, is it going to be like Krypton, where it's before the tragedy that made the I trench guess. the trench? I don't know. Like, I don't know what it, it, so there's very few details available. Apparently, James Wan is attached to produce, but someone else, someone else will direct it, and it won't feature, at least in this early stage, uh-huh. is not planned to feature any of the Aquaman characters or actors, because mm-hmm. it presumably won't take place in the present. I don't know how you could have it. I mean, I guess you could have it take place in the present and focus on some new character having to do something to do with the trench, like, you know, like investigate them or yeah. like infiltrate them in some, I, I don't know what you do. Anyway, apparently they were, you know, a popular aspect of the movie. And so Warner Brothers is rushing to greenlight a spinoff movie before they even get Aquaman 2 on track. Yep. So... It's a bit, it's a little bizarre, but I mean, it could be good. And James Wan is going to be overseeing it at least. Yep. And I think the fact, if nothing else, the fact that he's attached to produce this means that he's willing to continue having a, to be in business with Warner Brothers, which hopefully means that he'll sign on soon to direct a sequel. Right. Um, so anyway, and the other little bit of news this week, this came out of nowhere also. So you remember when uh, Marvel announced that they were, I think this was even before we were, obviously we've talked about this stuff on our on our show, but I think the announcement was before we started doing the show, when they announced originally that they were going to do four different Netflix series culminating in a team-up series called The Defenders, right? Which Correct. obviously all of that has happened by now. Um, but so Marvel announced uh, just today, actually, as we record this, a, a similar but somewhat different uh, arrangement with Hulu. And of course... Hulu is now owned, now that the Disney-Fox thing is a done deal, Hulu is now owned almost entirely by Disney, as is Marvel is owned by Disney. So nice. this is purely internal and not farming it out to Netflix. Mm-hmm. Marvel has announced a, so it's not really a deal, it's just one part of the company doing That's something funny. with another part of the company, and you can call it a deal. Um, but a Marvel-Hulu you know, joint venture um, to feature four uh, interrelated animated series featuring obscure slash quirky Marvel characters. So these four series are MODOK, uh, which is a, I'm trying to remember, it's an acronym, some mechanical organism designed only for killing or something. He's basically a giant head. He's a supervillain who's like a giant head in a robotic chair. So MODOK, Hitmonkey, 
who is a monkey, uh, kind of like Detective I mean, Chimp. I think I Detective got it. Chimp, if he was like a hitman instead of a detective, basically. Yeah, all right. Um, Tigra and Dazzler, which is going to be a team-up series featuring the Avengers feline, um, like sort of a, a werecat character named Tigra and an X-Men character called Dazzler, who's like a singer slash superhero. So Modok, Hitmonkey, Tigra and Dazzler, and Howard the Duck. Oh my god! So these are going to be four interrelated uh, animated series that are they're going to do their own thing, and then they will culminate in a team up series called The Offenders, which I thought was kind of cute. <laughs> That's awesome. So what's interesting is that these are going to be animated, and they're they've got some pretty good talent behind them. So Patton Oswalt is involved in the Modoc show, and Kevin Smith is involved in the Howard the Duck show. Nice. I guess they might get Seth Green to voice. Howard, Howard the, the Duck, Duck, since he did it in, in the two movies that he's been in already. That's fantastic. Um, I, I mean, this is animated, so we don't know if this is in any way part of the MCU. There hasn't really been any official animated, um, you know, yeah. MCU content yet. But these characters are so far untouched in the MCU, with the exception of Howard the Duck. So yeah. I don't see any reason why it couldn't be in continuity with everything else. Um, but one way or the other, this is what they're doing. So they'll each have their own show, and then they'll all gather together in this mm-hmm. weird team-up series called The Offenders. It's fantastic. So it sounds like fun. I mean, that these are definitely quirky fan-favorite characters. I mean, people people love Modoc, People love Dazzler. Dazzler's a popular sort of um, you know fan-favorite X-Man character. And then mm-hmm. Howard the Duck, obviously, is has been... Pretty popular at various points in his career. So, so funny. It's a it's a fun thing that they're doing, and so this stuff is probably I don't know. It might be late twenty nineteen. I I they're announcing it now. I don't know how much work has been done on it already, already but because we all know that animation takes a long time. But yep. I'm not sure if the announcement said somewhat is coming or not. But I'm assuming later this year at the earliest. But that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. And so that's it for our news. That's a good bit of news. So what was your comic of the week? So this week I chose Justice League number seventeen. Um, I picked it because it had the story with uh, two boys uh, forging a friendship and then being kind of ripped apart from that friendship, and namely Martian Manhunter, who in this continuity has been kept somewhere by a pro- by a group of humans prisoner so that they can poke, prod, and examine him to their delight. And um, he forges a friendship with a very intelligent young red-haired boy, which I did not see coming. I saw it coming the second you saw a young yeah, boy you saw with red young, hair. young boy with red hair who was sweet and kind and friendly to him when he was in the prison. And all of this is framed as a flashback from Martian Manhunter's point of view as he is standing on a very holy Martian site where they go to dump memories, cleanse unhappy memories from their lives so that they can move past them. And it, uh, in, in a Martian you know, brain dumping ritual, I suppose. You can frame it that way. And he has just regained these memories. And uh, he called forth Lex Luthor to help him for reasons we don't really know in the issue, but then become clear at the end of the issue, which is that Lex Luthor is the red-haired boy. Um, And it blew my mind. I should have seen it coming because pretty much any red-haired young boy has to be Lex Luthor in the DC universe. Like, either that or one of his clones or sons. But, um... But I didn't see it coming. And the, the little details of how they formed their friendship and how he had communicated to Martian Manhunter through the infrared spectrum on his T-shirts and just, I don't know, it, the, the, 
the bond that made them friends, the fact that they were both, this was interesting, the fact that they were both, they had both psychic ability. So it seemed like not just um, that Martian Manhunter can do psychic things, but apparently as when he was a boy, he could do it as well. Lex Luthor could do it as well, which opens I think he was up just, a whole wider thing. I don't think thing. that's true. I think no, he was just, that I way. think he was just communicating he was just taking advantage he of was, the lady. He was cueing John into the fact that he he wanted to communicate with him, and then John would reach out and establish a mental link. It's the same way that you see the members of the sure. Justice League all communicating telepathically, so like but it doesn't mean they have telepathic abilities. Okay. It just means John has linked them up. So I think that he was using the, okay. the words on his shirt to I'll, say, hey, I want to talk with you, and then John established a link that remained throughout their relationship. Uh, That's what I sort of figured was happening. Hmm. Well, yeah. It just goes to show you the power of how grown-ups can screw things up. <laughs> I think that's the moral of the story. That was my takeaway. <laughs> but anyway, the art was really nice. The story itself was really nice. The fact that um, Lex, at the end of the issue, doesn't really change his stripes, but he is affected by this revelation, and it touches him in some way that may pay off even later. So it's just a really good issue. Um, and that's why I picked it for my comic of the week. Very good. What about you? What'd you pick? So I picked uh, Green Arrow number 49 with the Dreaming number six as kind of a runner-up. That was a good one. Yeah. Um, I had trouble deciding. Between, I, I really enjoyed Justice League also. I had trouble deciding between these two. The Dreaming, I thought, was a really great conclusion to this yeah. opening arc. And a I lot of big I almost picked it, things, but I have one question. I'm glad we're going to talk about it. A lot of payoffs it. for Dora's character yep. and the, a lot of the mysteries that have been percolating throughout and the Judge Gallows and Cain and Abel and... Mm -hmm. and the next issue, apparently, we're going to actually see where Dream is and why he's abs absconded, I guess is a word you could use, abdicated the throne. Um, so I really enjoyed it a lot. But I, I was going to talk mostly about Green Arrow. So okay. if you had some, something to say about the Dreaming, you should say it now. My, actually, the one thing that I didn't understand why, uh, we didn't really get a resolution for why she wasn't real or why that was a trigger word for her. Like she didn't believe that well, she we still was don't really understand. We no. still don't really know much about her origins. Yeah. We just understand more about how she came to be in the Dreaming and what morpheus did for her what their yep. arrangement was and, and a little bit about why he did it mm -hmm. kind of but there's still a lot of mystery there so i don't think we quite right know what she is yet and right because even the pumpkin head man he, he thought that he was just making trinkets for her based on uh his masters. and he might have been because and he he, have been. He, he's like oh yeah <laughs> sure morpheus would would screw with people like this all the time you know like he would he would say well i mean it's a little unkind but i mean he would he would um I don't know. It's it's hard. He was a complicated character. Like he he wouldn't do things just to be kind normally. He was a very like cold-hearted person most of the time. Huh. Um but he he wouldn't he wouldn't be above doing things that were generous, but he wouldn't normally go out of his way to make people feel better just for its own sake. Right. So if if he if he thought that Dora does ha, should have her memories back or something like that or it was important for it to happen or even if he just felt pity on her, he wouldn't have gone to such great lengths of having Merv fashion trinkets. Yeah. Uh, you know, once a day for all this thing, he would have just given her back her memories or made it yeah. so like at an appointed time they came back to her or whatever. Like right. he wouldn't have gone to that much trouble. He wasn't normally quite that meticulous Regular. in his in his generosity so so we don't i don't think we really know for for sure whether um whether what she believed was right. the truth behind those gifts to be true or whether merv's assessment of assessment them just being correct, like junk yeah more correct mm -hmm. um yeah but that wasn't my general question my general question was how come 
the giant all-powerful being that basically vaporized Judge Gallows, why did he vaporize him based on her saying, well, that was a really cool twist, I thought, that the words that he was using against Dora were used against him in the end to say, you know, he's not real, and then poof, he just in the next panel didn't it, it had to do anymore. with the circumstances of its creation, I think. Like, it was um, because of the way it, 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 it explained as much, albeit in, in very uh, um, obtuse language, mm. it because of the way it was created and the way it was um, inherently interwoven with the fabric of the dreaming due to its the circumstances of its birth, it, I think it recognized him as something other, some like invading entity that 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 was corrupting the dreaming and knew it had he had to be expelled. Basically, mm-hmm. that's that's sort of how I took. I'd have to go back and read it to know if it was anything yeah. more than that. But that's just how I took it. Like it was it was part of the dreaming and sort of as a defense mechanism, it just obliterated him. Yeah. That was good. And you could say also perhaps it has some because of the fact that Dora was there when it came into being and, and all these other people, like maybe it sort of imprinted upon them a certain way and yeah. knew that they wanted him gone, you know? So I guess there could be an... We'll have to wait and see as it as it develops and we learn more about what its exactly. motivations are. Um, but Green Arrow number 49, I really enjoyed. The art um, by Javier Fernandez was was beautiful. The way Vertigo is turned... Like the whole city sort of turns into like this Escher painting. Yes. Where like perspective and... Yeah, that was so good. Did you ever see Inception? No, but I know, like, well, you know, that's the idea. If or, only from watching the sequences in Doctor Strange that everybody says we're kind of like Inception. Yes, yeah, no, Strange I'm familiar with that. Yeah. But they really, but it wasn't just a visual thing to be fun. Like, it actually paid off in the story in interesting ways. Like, where Ollie goes and reaches behind him, and <laughs> you can the see the space moment. needle way in the distance. But actually, he grabs it. It's not a big thing way in the distance. It's a small two dimensional thing in the foreground. He grabs it and uses it as an arrow. <laughs> he fires it, and then from. <laughs> kind of vertigo's perspective the entire space needle in its huge real life size like hits him you know <laughs> so fun fun things like that but it, it wasn't just the art and and how uh, how much fun they had with it it was also like the it takes a sharp right turn near the end where um ken vertigo so he's there he's attacking the whole city and he wants roy harper um and then it's you know green arrow tells him that roy harper is in dead. one of the beautiful most beautiful panels so sad this uh, not panel uh splash page um, it was a beautiful delivery of that news. Yeah. On top of and and the, the two itself. of them kind of commiserate. They have like this this bonded kinship morning. kinship now mm-hmm. because they he was important to both of them in in different sort of ways. different ways. Um, yeah, I always like moments like that when the hero and the villain can find some common ground because of some something you know, like the the villain might want the hero dead, but he's not above feeling pity for the hero in, in some ways when the hero's having a particularly bad day, for example. It, yeah. just, it humanizes the villain a little bit and shows... It, it, it speaks to Oliver's character, too, that he's, instead of just taking his rage out on Ken Vertigo, that he's willing to kind of open up to him a little bit, too. And he's still disgusted by the idea that that this guy could, you know... He's like, you know, don't pretend like, you know, Oliver's yep. saying, like, don't pretend like you knew him or whatever, because like, this is a villain, he's killed people and stuff, and he doesn't like to feel... And that way, and the things that Ken Vertigo said about how, you know, how he wanted to be, he says to Oliver, did he, when he died, was he free, you know, or yeah. was he, he's like, I've been tied down my whole life to Vladova, to prisons, to, you know, the Legion of Doom or Task Force X or whatever. Um, and so if I would have wanted anything for him, it was to be free. Mm-hmm. And and he, I know he had his own things that were holding him down his entire life. When he died, was he free? And Oliver, whether you agree with Oliver's assessment or not, basically had to say no. Um, and they, you know, they both 
are saddened by that and everything. Right. So I, I don't know. I really enjoyed it. And so it was kind of too, and it even ends on a cool little cliffhanger where like, like this robot shows up to Black Canary and is saying, you know, oh, you've got to go on this secret mission now because she was a, Right. She was a government agent. And in the New 50, I don't know how much of this is still in there because a lot of the New 52 stuff has been jettisoned. But in the New 52 conception, she was part of this government um, special ops squadron that also included, um, you know, Larry. Was it Larry? Yeah. Larry Lance, who, you know, her her ex-husband because she was trying to dine a drake and then she married him and that so it was team seven was the name of the team so it was larry lance and he and she was there and a couple of other wildstorm related people amanda waller was on the team Mm -hmm. steve trevor was there too i think Mm -hmm. um so i don't know a lot of that hasn't come into play in a while but she that was part of her backstory so the idea that she has like this government Uh, special ops background so she's being called back into service now to to take care of Green Arrow in some interesting way. What's, what's, what's sad is that um, these new writers had just come on board a few issues ago, and I've been really enjoying these last few issues, but unfortunately the series is ending mm-hmm. with the next issue, number 50. Hmm. Not because of poor sales or any creative issues, but more just the fact that I think DC has... They do this sometimes. Even though a series is riding high, they'll still end it because they have plans for the character elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Either they want to do like, I don't know, like say for example, they're, they're planning on bringing... Arsenal it might be a little early, but say for example they're planning on bringing Arsenal back to life as a, when Heroes in Crisis ends, and moreover they're planning on reintroducing Connor Hawk because he's a popular character. Sure. They might be planning on relaunching the series as like a Team Arrow series that sure. that has a different focus or whatever. So it happens sometimes. I mean, you cancel Nightwing and then you relaunch it as Grayson, and you cancel Grayson and relaunch Nightwing again. It doesn't mean the series isn't doing well. It just means that the editors decide to. I I respect it. Like, if you've reached the end of a story, why drag it out? Like, TV shows uh, tend to do that a lot. Yeah, well, the writers said that what they were doing with these last few issues is sort of, and with number 50, it was going to be sort of wrapping up the threads from the previous few years' worth of storylines, and then number 50 was going to be the jumping off point into new stuff in the future. Instead, that latter part isn't really happening. It's just number 50 will now be more of a conclusion. Instead of like an ending and a beginning, it'll just be an ending. (laughs) So. There you we'll go. see. I mean, they might be planning on launching some new team book and having Green Arrow be the leader, and they didn't want to have him there and in, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, they've got plans for Black Canary, like they're relaunching Birds of Prey or whatever because the movie is coming out. And yep. it's because she's been such an integral part of this title. They would rather just end this title and yep. reposition the characters elsewhere. Who knows? Like, the, unfortunately, sometimes good runs can get cut down prematurely by editors deciding to reshuffle the deck a little bit. So it's, it's too bad. Yeah. Um, so you ready for your pop quiz? I am. So this week, uh, because we fe- the uh, this week's episode of The Flash featured the exciting uh, TV debut of uh, classic Flash villain Goldface, nope. I'm going to be quizzing you about obscure Flash villains. Awesome. So I'm going to read you the Wikipedia summary, one oh. sentence summary of a Flash villain, and then give you four possible <laughs> options for, for the scene. name of the villain, and you have to tell me which of them is the real name. Okay, I'm ready. All right, number one. Yes. A villain who makes use of a special cane that enables him to cast complete darkness at will. Is this the shade, the darkness, the shadow, or the black? Shade. Right, that's the shade. All right, number two. Uh A criminal who had a grease gun, which made it almost impossible for anyone to catch him. Is this (laughs) the slick, the slippery man, the greaser, or the eel? Um, The slick. No, the eel. The eel, really? I thought for sure it wasn't going to be that one because um, Eel O'Brien is Plastic Man. Anyway. Right, but this was, I think, in the Golden Age. Well, actually, Plastic Man was a Golden Age character too, but they're from two different companies back then, so I'm not oh. sure they would have let that stop them. All right. 
Number three. Uh-huh. A villain with multiple personality disorder who eventually married Alan Scott. Okay. I'm with you. <laughs> Give me this perplexed look. All right. Was it Jackie and Mrs. Hyde? Miss Two-Face? Rose in the Thorn? Or Light in the Dark? Um, that's so weird. You know what? I'm just going to go for Mrs. Two-Face. No, it was Rose in the Thorn. Oh, I would have So her name was that. Rose something or other, and her supervillain... Uh, Alter, Alter Ego, Ego was, was the named thorn. the Thorn. Oh my god, that's I think she had her name. own feature for a while. Does she have her own I think that they reused, they they, they reused the name again later. They should have contacted you for workshop names. All right, number four. Go for it. A professor at the university attended by Jay Garrick who created a speed formula called Velocity 9. Okay. Okay, was this The Rival, Savitar, The Anti-Flash, or Zoom? Um, you told me. Because Jessie Quick uses this formula, doesn't she? Uh, it's not a formula as in a mathematical equation. It's a formula as in like oh. a chemical formula. Although they did use Velocity 9 on The Flash also. Yeah, that's I what I'm remembering. I think that's what they were using. That's what Hunter Zolomon was going to use to... medicating himself. To, yeah, to, to get his speed back yeah. or something. I forget exactly. They, they reused the name. I know that. Okay, well, all right. I will eliminate that from my mind. Could you read the options again? The Rival... Savitar, the anti-flash, or Zoom? Um, I'm going to say Zoom. No, it was the rival. Oh, man. Okay. This was the final, unless I'm mistaken, this was the final Golden Age Flash story, and they introduced this cool concept of like his dark opposite number, a dark sort of reverse speedster, which, of course, the Silver Age comics took and ran with with the reverse, reverse flash. flash and then later zoom, but the rival was the first dark speedster, basically. Oh, okay. And the Jeff Johns, of course, later brought him back in his JSA run, and he was really cool there. That's awesome. All right, number five. A disgruntled employee of Wiggins Toy Corporation. <laughs> awesome. Who donned a suit of armor that resembled one of his toy creations. Toy man. Was this Colonel Computron, <laughs> Major Menace, Captain Cavalcade, or Admiral Avarice? What? It's not Toy Man? Oh, no. Hmm. Read, read them again? Colonel Computron, Hilarious. Major Menace, Captain Cavalcade, or Admiral Avarice? Uh, Cavalcade. No, it was Colonel Computron. Oh my god. Okay. All right, number six. A speedster who was a clone of Bart Allen. What? Okay. A speedster who was a clone of no, Bart no, no, Allen. No, no, okay. Was it Catalyst, Inertia, Momentum? Or dead stop. <laughs> That's hilarious. Catalyst. No, it was inertia. Whatever. <laughs> I, I had enough. I had a one in four chance of getting that one. All right. Number seven. Yeah. A surgeon who went insane and now seeks sadistic ways to kill the voices he hears in his head. Oh. Was this murmur, whisper, the quiet, or hush? Ooh. No, hush is somebody else. Although that's tempting. Um, Murmur. Yes. Cool. In fact, Murmur's been on the CW. You remember, like, I think he showed up on Arrow a few I times. He's got, like, name. his mouth sewn shut yeah. or something, and he's got knives. Yeah, that was Murmur. Oh. All right, number eight. Uh-huh. A metahuman criminal that can manipulate wood. Was this paper cut, splinter, timber, or the stick? Splinter. No, paper cut. Was it really? Yep. That's terrible. That's the only non-wood related name. <laughs> well, it's wood related. 
It's, it's sort wood of adjacent, indirectly maybe. Well, that's like saying poop is food related. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's the direct result. <laughs> okay. So you got two out of eight. Yes, I did. And I hold it proudly. <laughs> That's all right. Much as one would poop. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so this week we're going to be talking about Star Wars Resistance, Star Trek Discovery, Flash, Black Lightning, and that's it, because we haven't watched, because Arrow hasn't aired yet, because we're recording early. So just those four. Okay. So Star Wars, oh, actually, we haven't even watched Star Wars Resistance yet. We, we yeah, talked that's about, true. that's right, it's recorded on Wednesday and then Monday. Busy so weekend, three busy shows. weekend. So Star Trek Discovery, this yeah. one was called an... So how do you pronounce the name? This because I heard people saying this on the on the on the podcast, and I was had to laugh because it sounds like they're talking about a teenage girl. How do you pronounce the name of the guy that ferries people across the river Styx? Is it Sharon? A Karen. Karen or Karen? Karen. <laughs> on on. It can't I heard be people, Karen. I heard people say Sharon, and that doesn't sound very intimidating either. Either Karen <laughs> or Sharon. Both of them don't sound. Well, I I also heard Chiron. For, no, for Chiron's. I don't know if that's. I, I was. I look at it and it would want to say like Sharon or something like that. C H A R O N. A fancy Caron. hippie way of Caron. Okay. No, Caron. Caron. Pretty much, yeah. Very Kryptonian pronunciation. Anyway, yes. this episode is called an Obel for Sharon. <laughs> um, and it. The, so the whole thing here is you've got your floating red murder ball. Yeah, and you've got gotta have that, and you've got Saru. Yep. Who's so? You know what I liked at the very at the start of this episode was this the first time in Discovery we've actually seen um, the the crew sitting around the br- a briefing table for like oh, a, you know what it, I mean like this used to yeah, be right. like fully thirty five percent of next gen of the running time of next generation episode to be the character sitting around a table talking about things and we've not seen any of that the bridge crew sitting around right. the table talking about things. What's kind of weird is that the table right. is in Pike's office. Yeah. It'd be like it'd be like if the b- briefing room was in Picard's ready room. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is weird. But anyway, it's got a big office, though. Picard just had, like, a, a, a cubicle with his dumb fish. Pike's got, like, this yeah. opulent, huge hall, hall, practically, that he's got for his ready room. That's um, cool. Yeah, so we got the red murder ball, and it's trying to communicate with Discovery, which I think probably everybody figured out except for the characters, because you've got this alien computer that's like, oh, it's attacking our systems. And he's yeah, like, yeah. No, we've all seen Star Trek before. We know it's actually just trying to communicate with yep. you. But it triggers this... Um, this primal, primal sort of this biological primitive process. biological process in Saru, where he's entering like this final stage of his life it's cycle. It's very, very riddive. <laughs> it's very, very part of his right. actual. Well, he's, he's entering this final stage of his life cycle, which he says either either he's harvested, either if you're back home on his planet, this would be a sign that it's either due for him to be harvested by the Ba'ul or otherwise he would it would gradually kill him as he goes progressively insane. insane. Um, so at first they're hoping to find a cure for this and then at the end it turns out it looks like they can't because they, they've, you know, made they've come to an understanding with the red murder ball and he's still dying. Cause yeah. of course, I, you know, we, the audience think that maybe they stop the, the thing and the process will reverse itself. Uh-huh. Like in Voyager, when Kess's biological urge to reproduce was uh-huh. kickstarted early because of some alien thing or whatever. But right. then it turned out, Oh, because it was artificially generated on and she'll can... be fine again at the proper time or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we're thinking it might be something like that. Um, and he gets Burnham to, she, Burnham's basically going to euthanize him, but before she can do that, his ganglia fall off on their own, and he discovers that now he's like a super Kelpian. Yes. Where he now no longer feels any fear, and moreover, this is seemingly like some myth that has been perpetuated throughout his culture's history, where it turns out that 
this is not some final stage of the life process. It's a, it's a nat, it's an, it may be inevitable, but it's a natural part where they're like metamorphose sort of, into, right. into like whatever the Kelpians are supposed to become. I mean, for all intents and purposes, like he could have been an adolescent up until his entire life, uh, for his entire life. And then now he's kind of like. Right. If everybody gets called, although his father looked pretty old. So it's not like, it, oh, it's not like when they turn, they turn 40 and, and all of a sudden this thing starts. Right. right. So it comes at different times. It seems like it's not yeah, like menopause it or whatever. To, yeah. Yeah. So I don't to. quite understand how that works, but, um, but yeah, so it turns out that either the Ba'ul have, have, have kept this myth alive so that the Kelpians will continue to offer themselves up lest they mm-hmm. go insane or whether there's some reason why like Kelpian society has, I like, how Vo- a- like how Vulcan society kept it a secret that pretty much all Vulcans could mind for, melt. For the record, true, for the record, but um, I, hmm, I, uh, I offered up an alternative, albeit nicer solution where I said maybe the Ba'ul are just, because uh, we've never seen them, right? So who knows? They may be like the elevated uh, species that sort of stays hidden, but all they are are really, um, you know, these evolved next stage Kelpians sitting up there in a nicer society. Like once yeah, you go I through just... this me- biological process, you're cold uh, down on, you know, Kelpia. Oh, so you're saying that the the Kelpians who are called aren't really killed. They're just taken to become part of the Ba'ul society. That's what I'm saying. That was Um, my offer. Maybe, but I think they'd rather keep the the whole predator-prey... Myth. ...angle. Like, I think the writers would rather keep the whole predator-prey angle to his species intact. Because it's kind of a cool hook for his character. Yeah. It's been done before is my thing. You can twist twist it. it Like, wouldn't that be a cool twist? But you can twist a concept so much that now it's no longer a cool concept, you know? Because you kind of have some things you kind of have to leave simple. So I don't know if It's sort of like... Actually, you know what I'm reminded of is the episode of Star Trek, um, forgive me, I don't remember if it was Next Gen or TOS, but the, I think it was TOS, the idea where there's a society that lives in the higher technology um, clouds, cloud cities, where they have the art. cloud and, minders? Is that what that yeah, was called? Yeah, and then people on, uh, yeah, down on the planet are like mining. The, what came to mind dumber. for me was Star Trek Insurrection, which is nobody's favorite Next Gen movie, where it's not quite similar because there's not quite the predator and prey thing there, but that's where you had the, the, the Baku on the planet of eternal life. Right. And, but then you had the, the, what was it, the Sona, um, who were the... Um, who were like the the evil aliens of the of the film, but then you find that they were actually just older Baku mm-hmm. who had left the planet and and started aging, and they had to like use all this technology to prolong their lives. Yeah. So they reminded yeah. me of that, but I, that's not quite similar. Yeah. So I don't know what they're going to do with that. Um, I think I think that we know, and they've said as much that we're, we're going to visit his planet again for the yep. first time since the the short track that was referred mm-hmm. to here. Um, I think I think when we watched that short track, we kind of knew that they were setting stuff up for the future. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's. I I do I agree with what I've seen people say about this episode, which is that there was a lot of good stuff in here, but it almost felt it almost felt like too much. Yes. Because you're, you if you just had the so the other thing too is you've got the whole Tilly thread, mm-hmm. where they think that that almost seemed like it was going back and forth too many times, where they they've got this alien parasite thing contained, but then as a result of the power failures and power surges, as a result of the red murder ball. It gets loose and attaches itself to her. So now we're exactly back where we were in the right. last episode. And Jet Reno comes in. There's some funny stuff between her and Stamets. And then they think they say they think they cut her out of the thing. But then there's another twist, and she's back in the thing again, yeah. the cocoon. And they look in there. She's not there anymore because she's been transported, presumably, to the mycelial network or something. I think that it was one too many. This is what I heard Jason Snell say on The Incomparable. Is it feels like it's one there were one too many ticking forts. clocks. Mm. You've got the red murder ball that's going to destroy the ship. Yep. 
And so that's a threat. But, yeah. it, but that threat almost seemed peripheral to the Saru stuff. Like Pike was running around in so many different directions that it wasn't until the end of the episode before he said, can we like break away from this thing and try to like, it was 40 minutes in before one someone on screen actually thought to voice that opinion. Yeah. So it felt like that wasn't getting enough attention. But you say so you've got the red murder ball as the main threat, but then as a result, either... As a result of like all the shutdowns or whatever, yep. they're unable to help Tilly and she's in danger or they're unable to help Saru and he's in danger. But mm-hmm. having both of those things going on in addition to the threat yeah. of the planetoid, which felt really like that felt like undercut- too many plot The idea of this ancient one. alien sphere that's trying to communicate with the ship. Yeah. I really wish they'd gone into that more because that's like a cool sci-fi yeah. concept. That really got the short shrift. And then I feel like both the Saru and the Tilly stuff, the tones of those two were so different. Because you've got Reno and Stamets bouncing off each other and Tilly with her humor and stuff. And bouncing that with the the really... I I felt like because of the way they were bouncing around between so many different tones, that the scenes between Saru and Burnham, while I felt they were written and acted very well, almost didn't quite land with me. They almost felt like overwrought. Hmm. Like seeing Burnham so outwardly bereft and emotive and crying and and almost wailing in certain scenes. No... You're getting well. She was all, she was way more emotional than we've ever seen her. Like right. distraught. So that, that, but that, that was but beautiful. She's to normally me. so implacable I as a character. I know, but that's but, the point. But I felt like when they're bouncing back and forth between that serious bridge stuff and somewhat goofy stuff in engineering, uh-huh. it made it made the the emotional stuff between Saru and and Burnham feel oddly. Offset? Out, offset and out of place, and it didn't quite land to me. It almost oh, felt like they were, I it, and almost was bordering into like melodrama for me. Hmm. Where it, and I'm almost like, are they? Is she acting too hard? Like I know she's a wonderful actress, but it almost felt like she was overacting in certain scenes, and I don't think she was. Oh no! I, hold on, hold okay. on. I don't think she was. I just it it started to land that way for me just because of the way it was juxtaposed with scenes that had such different tones. Mm-hmm. That it, it was in such sharp relief that it it struck me as the tone was off, and I feel like if they kept the, the Tilly stuff out of it or saved right. it for like a stinger at the end or something. And it was just the serious bridge stuff juxtaposed by the the drama between Saru and Burnham. I felt like the episode would have worked better. Or have the serious bridge stuff juxtaposed with the wackier stuff that's happening in engineering. Yep. Kind of like the the, uh, TNG episode, Disaster, I think it was called, where they strike like a subspace filament or something. And the bridge, Tro- Troy and Roe and O'Brien are stuck on the bridge. Picard is stuck in the turbo lift with the kids. Yes. Do you remember? Yes. And so the stuff between Picard and the kids, and then there was like Jordy and Dr. Crusher were in the uh, the the shuttle bay, and they need to expel the flammable stuff from the bay. Like there were a bunch of different. T- oh, and Worf has having to deliver yes. Keiko's baby. And yes. Like, they were bouncing forth back and forth between a bunch of different things there. And there, I feel like it felt like it worked better. Like the tones felt like, because there was always this sort of feeling of dread because the people on the bridge knew that the whole ship could explode at any minute because like the warp core was about to breach or something like that. I don't know. There, it all kind of worked together better for me. Mm -hmm. This felt like it was going for a similar kind of thing, which is people are like trapped in different parts of the ship, kind of a little bit like the Stamets and them were trapped in engineering. And Pike is like busy on the bridge. And meanwhile, Saru and Burnham kind of have their own thing going on. But to me, like the tones were either too different or something. And it, it felt atonal to me like it clashed too much and it kept taking me out of the scenes which were supposed to land emotionally for me Mm -hmm. and i know i really this is probably a a minority opinion because i was seeing people on twitter and of course the star trek official twitter account isn't going to retweet people that didn't like the episode right they're retweeting people that were emotionally devastated by those scenes and i'm not saying i didn't 
not enjoy it. Right. You know, but I did really enjoy the episode. But to me, I, I do think it, because it felt a little overstuffed, some of the more emotional stuff didn't land as well for me. But obviously that's, you know, will vary from person to person. Yeah, I think it does. And for my part, I absolutely love this episode. I like a good plot heavy episode and I didn't mind that it bounced around between those modes because I was able to context shift quickly enough and emotionally shift quickly enough to that all of the content... You make it sound like some sort of cognitive failing on my part. Well, I was able to keep up with the tonal shifts. I don't know what the heck is wrong. No, I don't know, man. If the uh, I don't know something fits, I don't, I don't have an end to that thought. Um, no, I'm just uh, describing that. It, especially in the moment, I looked over and both of us were teared up and fickleminded. No, I didn't tear parts. up at this one. Really? It doesn't take much to get me to tear up at a Star Trek episode, but this one didn't do. It. This one didn't do it for me for that reason. And I could tell that it, I could tell that it wanted know. to, and then, so that's kind of like oh. it almost felt like it was trying too hard in certain scenes. Where I'm like, this is not oh, like man, it's too much. Destroyed. And not only that, but to me, like the moment when Burnham actually did break down, it was so much more emotionally impactful because she's been so reserved and in control yeah, of her I emotions know. and yes she's seemed, a human but she has a vulcan upbringing so for her to to display seemed, just how much saru means to her yeah i appreciate i felt that's why i thought so that it was cool. that's why i thought that it was well written like I, I appreciate all of the the sentiments that were being expressed it just seemed a little too much like if she'd if she'd tried to keep a stiff upper lip a bit more i think it would have worked a bit better for me um, oh, not at but that it, moment. I don't know. That's you know, like if she tried to be, right if she tried to be strong for him yeah. instead of breaking down, then I feel like it may, maybe it would have worked a bit better for me because I'm just, I'm not used to seeing this level of emotion from her. And so with everything else that was going on, it, it was jarring to me anyway. It's just, it's my, it's, yeah, it's my yeah, yeah. It's all, it's, it's all in the interpretation of the art different oh and the other thing this and there was one other ticking clock too that we oh. didn't even get to yet so on top of the three already ticking clocks we had yes. the red murder ball saru dying and tilly being eaten ticking, by a mushroom there's also sure. the whole spock shuttle is going to leave sensor range yes, soon and we've got to right. get to it that was too, the red murder which ball only thing. came up like twice and there's like oh yeah it's like 50 minutes will go by and like oh yeah captain by the way spock shuttle and he's like yeah, oh that's right that is six, the thing i was supposed minutes. to be worried about like that seemed like one thing too many like why we know they're going to find Spock eventually. That seemed completely unnecessary. I think they could have cut that whole thing out and just have this episode end where the thread is resolved and now we're going to go follow Spock's I don't know. I liked it. Whatever. I liked it all. I didn't think I that, that it didn't feel like you need you didn't you didn't need that. There's one to, oh, at I least do. one ticking I, clock too many. I don't know. I liked it. I liked it all. So this week's Flash episode was called Goldfaced. Mm-hmm. So we get introduced to the uh, classic Flash villain Goldface, although very different here. Um, two two points of trivia here. Goldface is the villain who in the comics murdered uh green lantern tomar ray oh. this was referred to in recent issues of green lantern Corps when tomar 2 visited earth as a dark star to get revenge right and, and exact murderous justice and it was goldface that he was looking for i think but goldface had already died or something and so he couldn't find like those so it came up there sure and the other thing too is that the actor here that played goldface damon poitier i think his name is mm-hmm. um is the actor that's that did the motion capture for Thanos, <gasps> unless I'm mistaken, the motion capture for Thanos at the very end of Avengers. What? Really? Way before, obviously, they thought to cast Josh Brolin. Uh-huh. It was just for that one scene at the end in the post-credits where he sort of turns oh, profile view towards so the camera cool. and grins, you know? I think that's the same actor that was the, yeah. the motion capture slash body double that's for him there. Cool. Unless it's another guy with a very similar name, and I'm completely mistaken, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. I, I enjoyed this one. Um, I do like the I, the character stuff I appreciated was um, it was a little predictable that, you know, Barry and Ralph go undercover and you're like, oh, you see it coming from a mile away. Yeah. But, oh, Barry's going to feel like he has to, you know, darken up and get tough if they're going to he's going to have to cross lines and mm-hmm. justify 
And and uh, yeah, and dark. And what's so his name won't let that in. Felt, well, the, sure. the, that part felt predictable. But the part I did like, where and you can see it because the actor did a good job of it. The, the Hartley Sawyer did a good job of it, where Barry says, "Oh yeah, you're right, Ralph. The ends do justify the means." And you can see on Ralph's face, he's kind of like, mm, "Like it's a, that's all well and good for me, Ralph Dibney. Yeah. But you're the Flash, and you should be better than that. Yeah. You know, you can tell that that's what he's thinking. Yeah. You can read it on yeah. his face. And so later, when he locks Barry in the van. So that he can't get his hands too dirty. I appreciated that because I Me felt like too. that's that that's good. in character for, and, and they set it up, you know, because Goldface looks at Ralph and is like, "Yeah, you're you're you, you're, you're scum like me. You're scum. But I this, can there's smell something it. different about this guy, you know." Yeah. Who, who are you? And so I appreciated that. I, I mean, like that scene so much, by the way. That was probably my favorite scene in the th- entire thing I thought when the he guy play, the... I thought the guy playing Goldface did a really good job. Oh, I thought I agree. that he actually he had a real great. presence on the screen. Like yeah. sometimes they bring in these one-off villains and yeah. they're pretty. the actors are pretty forgettable. Yeah. Even sometimes the recurring villains can be pretty forgettable. But I thought this guy made a, was pretty memorable in just his one his one appearance. Yeah. No, but I appreciated um, Barry. The, the, the writing was really fun. Uh, how Barry came up with the alter ego of the chemist. They call me the chemist. Nobody knows that yeah. I do all this crap. I was, liked it. It was the, great. I like I like that. Okay. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. The one part that I could have really done without was like, and I almost felt like, where is this coming from? Is the sequence where he and Ralph like take their big guns and. Like this. Oh yeah, laser tag action scene. Like this. That ma- was awesome. <laughs> but but it's not. It's they're just they're going in there. But it's not laser tag. I mean, I no, realize I they have it set on stun. But they're going in there and they're just blowing people away with their actual guns. Yeah. Set to this like hip hop music or something like that. And I'm like, what are you doing, show? Like because normal- it was set like a laser tag arena, even though it was a very high stakes situation. But normally superhero shows don't. To me, it it was very, very close to glorifying gun violence, and I realize oh, maybe yeah, I'm being too okay. serious about it. But characters like the, characters like the Flash or Superman or Batman, even you know, like yeah. the the idea that they would just take a gun and go in and blow away all the bad guys, even if it is set on stun, it's not like Star Trek does it all the time. What's your what's your beef? Yeah, but they carry phasers all the time. Like the Flash doesn't doesn't use guns, you know. It, well, it's, it feels he he had no powers. What's he gonna do? I, I I understand that it makes logical sense as written in the episode, and he is a cop, so yeah, he's f- proficient with firearms and all this other stuff. But I I don't feel like it just feels wrong. Like if the climax of a of a Spider Man movie was was him Peter Parker walking into a warehouse and just blowing a bunch of people away with guns. Like it's not superheroes, unless you're like the Punisher or someone on that level, superheroes are supposed to be above that kind of thing. Yeah. Like I don't like the idea of this of a of a colorful DC Comics TV show making that sort of like Call of Duty you yeah. know, style first person. It almost felt like a first person, like a cutscene from a first person shooter video game. And those kind of do glorify gun violence in a way that a lot of people in modern society are kind of uncomfortable with. Even people who actually like play and enjoy those games mm-hmm. are kind of like, it's a little too close to stuff we see in the headlines all the time. I'm not too sure if we should be enjoying this as much as we are. And I, and I don't really need it in my flash colorful flash TV show either. It's like, Oh, I know what we can do. We can just take these big guns and go in and shoot everybody. Like, I don't like that being the way a story is resolved in, in The Flash. Hmm. And uh, maybe it's it's my hang up, but it I feel like you're full of criticism today. But I don't. Do you see what I mean? Like I see what you mean. I just I, for me, I was I was a fun scene. It was just different. It was a little different because they neither of them had their powers. And not only that, but they were using the um, the weapons against the weapons dealers. So I well, didn't I get, feel bad. I get you the know? irony of no, it. I, I just it. I don't like it when a superhero just like takes a gun and also, shoots everybody. I know, but you were saying that this is also the climax of the story, and I just disagree. The climax was the outwitting of no, I know. The I, I didn't. Character. I didn't mean it to to be the climax, but it, it just felt like 
I don't know. And if it if they if they'd done it differently, I think I would have been okay with it. It was the way like this this weird music, which is completely different than any music we hear in a normal episode. Of the Flash kicks in, and the way it was directed to make it seem like oh, this is cool. Like we can we can make this a really interestingly directed scene like the daredevil hallway fight or like the matrix or something like we'll make this we'll have cameras swooping all around the place in the way that we don't normally do on this show and we'll have weird lighting which is really cool and atmospheric it was it was the way it was sold on screen was almost made it seem like this is cool like what is happening right now is the ultimate cool thing and i'm like sorry that's not guns aren't cool you know what i mean like if it had been done as more like serious okay we don't have our powers we gotta take these guns we gotta go in there and stun these guys and if they'd shot it more plainly, mm-hmm. like a normal scene in The Flash. Like you're looking for an episode of The Arrow. Well, yeah, like because when they shoot people on Arrow, yeah. like when Diggle or whoever or Wild Dog shoot people on Arrow, I don't feel like it's glorifying gun violence because it's not presented as a slow-mo shooting. Like, usually yeah, yeah. anyway. like when it, And because that show has a different tone. The show is lighter and more fantastical. It'd be like if... if you remember on Buffy how, is, how sometimes people would be like, well, why don't you just shoot... The monsters or the vampires. And it's like the whole thing on Buffy was the guns only make things worse, right? Witness mm. certain things that happened in season six to certain beloved supporting characters, yeah. right? Um, and I feel like the overriding theme of these kinds of superhero shows is similar, which is that violence is sometimes necessary to resolve a problem, which is like an inherent weirdness in superhero stories to begin with. But gun violence is never the solution. Normally the superheroes are the ones speaking out against or stopping gun violence. So it's, it's all kind well of, and good when you've got superpowers. I know. I understand that in the context <laughs> yeah. of the episode, it made logical sense. Yeah. But the writers chose to write it that way. They chose to. It's like I understand you're taking. It's like the yeah. Superman killing Zod thing. It makes it made logical sense in that movie, but the writers chose to write it. Chose chose to write that yeah. as the inevitable conclusion of that storyline. And here I feel like, and I think it was mostly the way it was presented. Like if it hadn't been presented as like the Matrix, where right. look at how cool these people are with their guns and their slow mo and their hip hop music, yeah. right? Yeah. If it had just presented as been like an unfortunate necessity or something they had to do quick and quick and clean yep. to resolve the threat, yep. but instead of it, look at how cool they are now because they've got guns, right? Like yeah. that. It was the way it was sold that made it seem kind of icky to me. Like I didn't like how how slick. You and didn't appreciate that they were having fun with uh, doing a playful action. You can have sequence. fun with it, but it seemed like it was glorifying. It was the way that the way the lighting and the music and the and the the camera work made it seem like it was trying to say this is the coolest thing that's ever happened on this show. Isn't this awesome? You know, okay. where whereas it's not. I don't feel like that should be the kind of message the show is is selling. Mm. That's that was my issue with that, and it it just seems so. In addition to feeling just out of place, yeah, just. Tonally, like in terms of the music and the visuals from everything else in the episodes, like it became a different show for five minutes. Mm-hmm. I also don't really appreciate what it what it seemed like it was trying to say about massive violence. things, things that are yeah. you know things it was presenting. Um, mm-hmm. But I still enjoyed the episode. But that was like a weird five minutes where I'm like, what What are you doing, show? Like, what is what is this now? Um, so Black Lightning. Mm-hmm. So this was this was another good one. I'm trying to remember everything that happened. So we got the funeral for Khalil. Yep, Jennifer wants so to good. wants to suit up so she can get revenge on Tobias Whale. Yep. There was the whole thing with the uh, the sit-in, I guess you could kind of call it, or the yeah, sort of the, impromptu the protest. protest at the school. That was great. That I was do a great so scene. so I don't know. I feel like they kind of went a little far in some places um, because they got they. They humanized the, or tried to at least humanize the new principal character by showing that he came from. Really a rough hard background beginnings. too, yeah. but I feel like they way oversold it. Where like, and I don't doubt that some people actually have to 
to resort to these things to survive in the real world, unfortunately. But the way he's like, you think you had it tough. I had to grow up eating dog food. And I'm like, like, do you know what I mean? That almost seems too much. Like you could have made him sympathetic and, and have it be like a reversal. Like, oh, you think this guy's some privileged white guy who's coming into to lecture the African-American characters. And instead it turns out that he's had it rougher than most of them. And it's like, you could do that, but they, they pushed it so hard where he's like, I had to like. <laughs> eat my own fingers to survive yeah, when I was yeah. growing. And it's like that's too much, you know. Like yeah. you're really trying to, and so it came off as almost preposterous. Like, and yeah. it shouldn't because some people have to do those things or worse to survive yeah. in the real world. Yeah. But the way the way that they do, you think it was the in the per- writing saw, or the performance? You could it, say it was the performance. I didn't fault the performance. I just think that it came because it came out of nowhere. Yeah, for this guy it was that we really have random. No, we have no barometer for this guy and like how he normally acts and what his life is. You know, if they set it up as like, if we'd seen more of him before, mm-hmm. we'd we'd seen enough of him to think that he was. Yeah. You know, and those, so this is a surprise reversal. Now it turns out he, even though he's wealthy now, yeah. it turns out that he had a rough background growing up. But we know nothing about this guy, and so yeah. he starts going on and on about his his hard luck beginnings mm-hmm. and we're like where is this coming from like you know what i mean it yeah. just seemed whoa out of nowhere and and <laughs> and jefferson's reaction was kind of like ours was he's like looking at this guy in disbelief he's like whoa tmi man like why are you telling me this like i just came here to say please don't suspend my daughter yeah i don't care about how much dog food you had to eat growing up because you know? <laughs> he, he, he's standing there in disbelief yeah this guy is unloading all this on him so yeah. i'm like is this scene supposed to be over the top like are we the audience supposed to feel like he's sharing too much information because jefferson makes it seem no, like he's sharing too much that, information well yeah no i mean he jefferson was rightly offended because he was using this as a justification for some seriously racist yeah and i mean behavior on his this part is, well an intolerant behavior towards so the students the, this is where we part. get this is where we get into trouble because i don't think that he was it was he was he was his behavior correct is is difficult to say like if if this had been it's the kind of thing where he, he's... So I think at the very least we can say that he's not being aware enough of the optics of his position, which is a large part of Jefferson's argument with yes. him, right? If, if Jefferson, if another... If this Jefferson had still been a principal mm-hmm. and someone else had been staging a protest on school property mm-hmm. that was in violation of the school rules or something, sure. Jefferson would have come in, come in and broke it up and possibly suspended people involved if they were not following his right. orders, right? And so this guy didn't really do anything wrong per se. It's just the fact that... He that was a heartless jerk about it. And also I actually that he thought was he, really he was more patient than I thought he was no, going to be. Because he kept giving... I don't think so at like, all. Well, I don't think so at all. But he kept giving her a chance after chance to stand down and she kept escalating the situation and like preaching to everybody there and getting them involved and mm-hmm. making and like calling him names, which is like way beyond the pale when you're a student talking to the principal, you know, like she was she was talking back to him and insulting him. Right. Mm-hmm. And belittling him in front of the, the students gathered. You don't get to do that. Don't defend the jerk. Don't defend the jerk. Don't do that. <laughs> he so was an outright jerk. His, his mistake was his mistake was. I mean, maybe it's a bad rule to have. He turned it into a situation, and it shouldn't have they been were one. Both and as, he had mm, absolutely no right to be... Both he and Jennifer were... As, well, he was trying to resolve the situation by coming in and saying, you're breaking the rules, so stop now, or I'm going to have to take this to right. the next level. And she immediately started pushing back and, and insulting him and getting other students involved and shouting and doing stuff like that. So I think that she was... They were both in the wrong. Actually, but she was, no, she, did, she never shouted. You're right. She did keep. She did modulate her tone in in such a way as no, to. No, she was absolutely like 
full-on she she handled it really really maturely, she was being was hostile though she was well, she was she was not shouting she was but she being was definitely confrontational but not confrontational. hostile anyway I, anyway I, I, so no this is the problem though that's why i don't think see here's this is the issue and he, what he did wrong i mean this is obviously a larger conversation what he did wrong wasn't necessarily his actions i feel like but more just the fact that he was not being aware enough of the, the reasons, bigger, the bigger issues, something yeah. something that someone who is part of that community. I don't hang on. Would, I don't would, think he, no no. Would I think not it's approach the situation to say that, way. that he was unaware of it because that's the discussion that they had. Right. That's, you're right about that. He he's he was di- apathetic. He's dismissive of the concerns dismissive, of his exactly. black, black students because he feels like he's had it worse than them. Mm-hmm. So and he doesn't believe in his own privilege. So I don't think that he necessarily behaved incorrectly in that scene. I think, though, that that his motivations were sort of poisoned by his the the his his mindset that he was bringing mm-hmm. to it, and so that caused things to to escalate further than they otherwise Absolutely. would. But I still think that, and so and so he did do so. It's, it's like it's it's this just the way the world is. Like certain things, um, like uh, a politician of color can say. Or, or an actor of color or a singer of color can say that if a white singer or actor or politician would ever said the same thing, mm-hmm. they would be pilloried for it. Because there's certain things that if, if, you're, if you're one way, you're, you're being insensitive, mm-hmm. right? But if, if you're part of that community, mm-hmm. there's an implicit understanding there that even though you're saying certain things, you're coming from a place of respect and understanding and because you're part of that community, right. you know? It's the same way that... That African Americans can obviously can use certain certain words, mm-hmm. right, amongst themselves. That if a white guy were to do it, mm-hmm. it would be horrible, yeah, right? Absolutely, because you're you're part of that community, and so you're kind of it's it's like the whole thing, like oh, I can say you know if someone says something bad about you know Italians, you go, oh, I can say that because my grandfather was Italian or whatever. Sure. Right? <laughs> that whole that old joke, <laughs> that you old know? joke, yeah. But I mean, there's certain things you can get away with when you're part of that community that you can't when you're not. So I feel like if if Jefferson would have done the exact same thing. It wouldn't have come across. I don't think you'd be having quite the same reaction to it. Yes, because you know what I mean. So it's not yeah. that he did anything wrong. It's that the fact that he should have, even though he did the correct thing, it was maybe not the right thing to do because he should have known that doing the correct thing is not always the right well, thing the when you're in this position. Between his, between this principle and Jefferson Pierce as well, because there's no way that he would have been so dismissive of the entire scenario, like taking the race issue aside. Well, he would the have tried. He would have tried to like. He would have tried to like commune with them. Exactly. He would have been like, I mean, look, I hear you. I know where you're coming from. With every let's you and me, exactly. you and me go talk, and we can maybe figure out a time and a place to have a more official service. In a this principle way. can use the rule book more as a guideline if anybody can make exceptions to the rule book it's the principle right i guess i'm just so I'm just, i guess i guess the only the only it's another the only level in which characters. i would defend this guy is that is that he i feel like if you're going to be like an inveterate rule follower mm-hmm. and like follow the letter of the rules right be obsessive he he, he he did everything he like dotted all his i's and crossed his t's you know he he was he he kept giving her chances and he kept and he was not being terribly disrespectful to them like he was doing everything correctly but you're right like there was a better way to handle that a better way than the correct by the letter of the rules way sometimes you've got to even even if this kind of service but or protest thing, though, was was, tone... a, was was against the rules, yeah. there's a time to bend the rules, mm-hmm. which is something like when Jefferson understands because he understands like the greater needs of healing the community that this guy doesn't care about. Right. So I guess I guess it's just like I don't know. The episode felt like it was trying to 
That's what that's what made the other scene where he was talking about the dog food. Yeah. I'm not misremembering that. He did mention no, he how did he did mention about dog that. Food. Yeah, um, I was I was I was sympathizing with the fact that he had hard upbringing. But then you're right. That dog food was like one step too it's, far. It's a weird thing to weird. have both of those scenes in the same episode because coming off that earlier scene, mm-hmm. then he starts going on about his hard life beginnings. But but people but viewers like you who are like already like you're not in this guy's camp, right? So now he starts no. going on about his hard life beginning and it's impossible to feel any sympathy for him, even though yeah. he's saying very sympathetic things. So it feels weird to have because- those two scenes back to back. Like if you if we they'd humanized him, I think we had a debate about this in a, like a couple months ago in the podcast about what, what direction they're going to take this character. Like are they going to have him, are they going to set him up as like the principal Snyder of the show only to humanize him later? And was mm. like, oh, well, we were wrong to view him yeah. as the villain. Or are they just going to make him like more and more evil as time goes on, or like more and more of a of an antagonist, at least to the he's definitely the people on the show right so, now. He's painted as the uh, representative of you know white male privilege and the apathy. Well, that's towards... why it was a weird decision to have. That's what I'm saying. It's weird to have these two scenes in the same episode because that's such a they portray him as too. someone who's who's privileged, yep. like who doesn't understand the needs of of his minority students, and then they go into a scene where he talks about how he's not actually privileged. Yeah, and he had. Well, a, but that's... it seems weird to have those two scenes right up against each but other. This is the brilliance of it because I I really respected this setup and this pitch in this conversation because that's the behavior of a whole lot of white people. One doesn't have to do with the other. It's like. This was highlighting an argument that a whole bunch of white people on the internet have been making. Like, I didn't have it easy. Nobody handed me everything. and Blah, blah, blah. I had a hard life. I lived out of my truck for four years and I earned blah, blah money and it just it wasn't enough and we were homeless for... And I'm like, yes, but <laughs> that's aside, right? And And Jefferson had a line in there like, that's like... I respect the fact he he was really respectful in the thing. He said, I I, I get that you had it hard, but there are certain advantages that you from your background and upbringing had that a rich black man never would have had. And that right there sums it up. Yeah. I, I, and he's right. I just, I would, to me, it would be like if the show wanted to take its uh, sort of social conscience or whatever to the next, I don't know. I don't know how to phrase it, but, I feel like it would have been it would be interesting if the show actually did humanize this guy more. You and never say, know, like five episodes from now he may get it. Like yeah. he may understand the distinction between a hard life and white privilege. I just, it would be and, and I'm not saying that the show the show better needs to understand the white man's burden. <laughs> That's not <laughs> what I'm saying. But it would be interesting if the show I don't know, this is I don't know. I'm trying to think of how to phrase this and not come across as as someone who's like who's advocating the wrong thing, but it would like the show is a predominantly black show, which is great, mm-hmm. but it it would be interesting if every now and then the show, um, after spending you know ninety five percent of its time dwelling on the issues that face African Americans, would every every so often if there's a white character on the show acknowledge that that the white characters have their own stuff that they're dealing with, you know? And, and, and in well, this Gamby's ep- dealing with some stuff. I mean, I think yeah, that but he's that, the only none of it has to do with race, though, right? Like true. And and yeah, like black people in this country have it way worse than white people, un, you know, undeniably. But there are there are social and cultural issues that affect disproportionately every group in this country. Yes. And so it would be interesting if Black Lightning, as a very race conscious show, mm-hmm. would and it, it, like every so often when there's a when there's a, a character who's not black on the show would take a little bit of time to present their struggles 
in a, in a sympathetic way too, you know? And mm-hmm. I realize that you've got literally every other show on, on most major networks that are 99% white. And that's all they deal about deal yeah. with is the struggles that white people are facing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but as a show which is not just because you have gay rights issues on the show too, right? Yeah. Because you've got Anissa and Grace and mm-hmm. so on. As a show which is just broadly socially conscious and not just about advocating for black issues, mm-hmm. it would be interesting if the show did humanize this guy a bit more because it would be an interesting counterpoint to say that you know the, every this this show is a place where we can sympathize with people from all sorts of backgrounds, you know, and, yes. and, and that have had all sorts of issues related to poverty or mm-hmm. race or whatever. And not just, and not only have the black characters be the characters that are worthy of the audience's sympathy, right? right? And I, again, I want to couch this in like 15 levels of saying, I'm not saying that this guy is right in his, you know, in saying that he's had it worse or any of these other things. No. I understand. I completely That's agree with Jefferson's position. That's the argument that a lot of people start with. I'm just saying, it's, I'm saying. it's maybe a little, here's, here's where I'll end. Maybe, maybe it's just a little easy to bring in this like, um, strong, straw man, white guy character yeah. who's like the snidely whiplash principal, mm-hmm. where he's replacing our beloved principal and he's doing everything wrong because he's the white guy. That's just a little easy for a show which is normally a bit more nuanced in its mm-hmm. portrayal of all sorts of characters. But I think this is exactly to to hmm, well, the writers have the opportunity to go exactly in that way, right? Because they could take this horrible human being as he stands now, with his own baggage and justifications and ignorance of his own privilege, and actually make him grow during the course of the show. I wonder they if could. They, I wonder if they will. But that's, that's what I not. wondered if that's what they were trying to do with the whole dog food scene, but it came off as so jarring that was and a preposterous. Little much. Yeah, that, that was like, a little much. Is this the writers trying to make him seem preposterous, or is this the writers trying to humanize him but just not doing a very good job? I of think it? it was the latter. You think I it was think, a you think it was a failing on the part of the writers to make him seem sympathetic? Giving him a giving him a background story of growing up in poverty, growing up with in a house of addicts, watching his uh, mother overdose while her his father watched. I mean, that's messed up, but it happens. There are white crack babies born a lot, you know, so that it it happens. But giving him the story of like where he's running around and saying, I ate dog food and all that. And that was a bit over the top. That was that was really gilding the lily, as they say. Maybe if he'd just been, and I, I'm, I don't want to fault the actor, because I think it's probably just the way it was written and or directed, like the number of exclamation marks that were in the yeah. script, for example. But if he'd, if he'd more... Disappointed! But if he'd more... Co- if he more calmly and rationally, like right. if he was still sitting, instead of like getting up in Jefferson's face and screaming at him, if he'd like been sitting behind his desk and he'd very said, look, I understand where you're coming from, Pierce, yes. but you've got to understand this this thing and this thing and this thing about me and where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. So I'm in, so this is, this is, that would have been, like yeah. if he'd more rationally laid it out instead of coming across as like this blustering, frothing at the yes. mouth yes. caricature, it might have seemed a bit more. And like it would have been had, and again, we're we're presuming we know what the desired effect of that scene was. Maybe it was to make him seem like a preposterous blowhard. But if it wasn't, right. I feel like they could have done it a little differently, where it, it actually came across as like, oh, it's, here's one to grow on, kind of thing, instead of just being like, oh man, this guy's a, a you want to know something funny? I mean, maybe it felt like that way because of the performance. True, but I don't think there was a very. There, there are a lot of ways that you can say the same sentence, you know. So as an actor, you've got a lot of choice. Well, yeah, so it's he, the director's, he took that. That was that, that might have been his purview. his impulse to go in that direction. Right. But if the director and, wanted you know, an alt, he should have asked for one. Yes, <laughs> he I should know. have said, you know what, maybe a little less, a little calm, more and a little more, you know. <laughs> a little more rational, rationale. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. There are a lot of people out there who are, use that as a justification to be horrible to people who are in groups um, that are underprivileged, like. And to 
keep the system the way it is, which is part of the problem. So yeah, this, I mean, is, this is the starting that's, point that's, for that's the discussion. The flaw, that's, the, that's the flaw, not in the character, not as written, but you know, the flaw within the context of the story. Yeah. Like this is the character's flaw is that instead of using his, his own um, desperate beginnings as a way to empathize with right, to his charges, with he's using it as a way, a way of dismissing their concerns. Right, because you know? he got, he got out of those And that's those an interesting, that's an yes. interesting way to write the character, but I, I don't know, like the way the couple of scenes in this episode were presented almost made it seem like I was, I was. Why did un- you go into I, education? I was unsure. If well, D-bag, yeah. Well, no, I, I, I don't. I have trouble <laughs> believing that because he seems like more of a pencil pusher than an educator, you know. So he maybe yeah. he rank, rank, came up more through the administrative side of things and less, of, you know. Right. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway. Well, the episode was really good, and it's full of amazing topics to discuss, as as evidenced well, by our long, long discussion. Let's talk more about the white characters on the show, though. That's really what I'm interested <laughs> Jesus in. Jesus Christ. Uh, is that it for shows? Yep, that's it. Really? Well, that's a great bit of shows, and I I, I really am enjoying this show very, very much. And, um, yes. So if you would like to reach out to the show, we have an email address, uh, mailbag at smartspodcast.com our website is www.smartspodcast.com on twitter we are at smartspodcast and on facebook it's facebook.com slash smartspodcast do you have a parting sound for us dog food nice